Welcome to the segment, a Zero Trust Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Raghunanda Kumara, Head of Industry Solutions at Illumio, the Zero Trust Segmentation Company. Today, I'm joined by George Finney, Chief Security Officer at Southern Methodist University. At SMU, George oversees all aspects of cyber and physical security, finding creative ways to enhance new and existing protections. George is also the best-selling author of several cybersecurity books, including Project Zero Trust and Well Aware, Master the Nine Cybersecurity Habits to Protect Your Future. George is joining us to talk about his experiences with Zero Trust in higher education. Today, we're unpacking the cultural elements of cybersecurity, what Zero Trust isn't, and why Zero Trust projects fail. George, it's a, it's an absolute pleasure to have you as the guest on our podcast. The first thing I want to ask you is, how does a law graduate go from graduating in law to doing a law internship to becoming a network engineer to then becoming the chief security officer at SMU? That's quite quite a few direction changes. So I actually, my undergrad was in liberal arts, which meant I studied a lot of philosophy and math, different things, languages. I I learned to speak ancient Greek, you know, really, really awesome experience. And I thought when I got out of college that I was going to go be a stockbroker. I actually interviewed on Wall Street and realized like, uh, yeah, I totally wouldn't want to do that. So I actually, my, I, I got a, a job at GTE, so started out working on their DSL lines, their department, uh, became a network engineer from there. And actually, I went to a couple of different startups, one in Denver and then another in Dallas. And I realized I, I love startups. I love open source. And that was actually the genesis of why I went to law school was, hey, th- there, there's this thing, the GPL. I really want to get into that. There's a lot of open source licensing out there. While I was in law school, the GPL version three came out. I actually did a directed research around that. And again, I thought I was going to go be like a, a lawyer Never expected to be at SMU for 20 years, but I got that tap on the shoulder from our CIO and said, hey, you know, we really need a chief security officer, right? The writing's on the wall. Um, You know, all all of the security folks at the time reported into kind of our infrastructure networking department. And I had that background as a sysadmin, one of my startups doing Linux support or whatever, in addition to to being a network engineer. So I had this crazy background of law, you know, network security and, you know, sysadmin. So it made a lot of sense to to kind of bundle all that up. And we brought the team under me. And gosh, it's just been uh, fun. I mean, being in higher ed, it's like the wild, wild west. So it's really rewarding. And that's what's really enabled me to write some of these books is just being in this environment that's really thoughtful about the way we do things. And I've been there so long, I've had the chance to grow the whole program and be a part of every facet. Whereas if you know, if I was at a larger organization, I'd be much more specialized. So gosh, it's been such an awesome, incredible journey. Oh, that's fantastic. And I think the loss of Wall Street and the loss of the bar has been the gain of the uh, of the InfoSec community. So you, you talk about sort of your role as uh, CSO at, at SMU and about how interesting it is and how varied it is, right? Like, I just think sort of the, the, the role of a chief security officer at a education institute, right? must be so varied and demanding for a number of reasons, because I was reading some of the blog posts you'd written and you spoke how when you came to talking about sort of enhancing security, I think one of the research fellows fairly high up in the organization said, 
oh, no way, right, research should be open and free, and it, you're against sort of academic freedom. Like, how do you balance all of these things in your role? So it's interesting. I didn't realize this when I started, of course. Higher ed is really highly regulated. If, for example, you were at a bank or at a retail shop, you'd have some good guardrails on what you do. Whereas in higher ed, we do all of it. We have student loans, right? That makes us compliance-wise under the same obligations that a bank would have. At the same time, we've got a health center and we've got HIPAA. We do credit card processing. We've got student records. We've got European folks. We do so dealing with privacy laws and everything. The variety is really challenging. And that's actually what appeals to me. And I think just generally speaking, in the security world, we have to stay on the bleeding edge, right? We're always having to secure that next new thing. Okay, containers are coming. How, how do we do that? How do we do security in this whole new ball game? And frankly, I get bored really easily. And I think if I were doing the same job for, for 30, 40, 50 years, right? No knock on the folks out there that are still doing COBOL programming. But man, I would have gotten way burnt out from doing the same thing that long, right? I need to, to keep up with the latest thing. And security is that career that gives that to me. Completely. I'm sort of fascinated by just new, interesting things that security, cybersecurity in all its manifestations throws up. And actually, you describe such that like that we often don't think of educational organizations, academic institutions as actually being this, um, it's almost this like conglomerate of lots of different industries bundled together, right? So how do you bring all of these various departments that all have different priorities and different challenges, how do you go about establishing a unified security culture? It's really hard, right? And some people say it's top down, others say it's bottom up, right? It's both. And, you know, the, the really unique thing about SMU, and I didn't have anything to do with this, it was, you know, way, way before my time. But the thing that most people know about Southern Methodist University is that we got the NCAA death penalty. We're the only university. So back in like 88, Right. Remember, there was the big football scandal where we were paying players before it was like cool to play, pay players. Right. We're, we're, you know, everybody was doing it. Right. We're the ones that got caught. Fascinating to be a part of the university 15 years later. And that's not something that George did as the CISO. Right. I inherited that. But thinking, oh, my gosh, every decision we make, every, every you know, new new vendor, the way we handle financial decisions, all of it. I think is influenced by that one incident. And lots of organizations have had breaches or small incidents, right? There, there's that famous saying out there, never let a good crisis go to waste. So again, I think those things are the things that stand out in people's memories. And that collectively drives culture. And so I've wanted to find ways to be proactive at, instead of reactive. So, you know, th those are great opportunities. You can also create those opportunities and you can also build relationships with your leadership team. Again, that's something that that takes time. But I remember when I rolled out my simulated phishing program, this is eight years ago now, in the first campaign I sent, I caught our president and I didn't get yelled at. I didn't get punished. But it's fascinating because I know other CISOs that have launched simulated phishing campaigns that did catch their CEO or whatever, and they don't do simulated phishing campaigns anymore, right? So you've got to have that trust that everybody's going to work together for towards a, a, the common goal. And again, when you can align that to the mission of the organization, right? We need to protect our community. We're here to protect our students who are vulnerable, who are growing and learning. That That's magic. You know, tapping into that to help drive culture is, again, something that it's so amazing that we can be a part of that in the, in the security world. 
And I think I just on that last point, something that is sort of regularly expressed is that in order to do your job as a security professional, the first thing is that you need to understand the organization that you're protecting, right? And the, essentially their value prop and then your own value prop that ties in with theirs. So like, can you express how you express your value prop to your, to your board? Yeah, so um, I don't know if you've ever seen the, the, the Charlton Heston movie, Soylent Green, back in the 1970s, kind of a sci-fi thing. I'd love to hear about it. I'm going to spoil the ending, uh, uh, but essentially, like, the world has, you know, grown so much, they've run out of food. And so, like, there's this special food, it's called Soylent Green, that, like, people love and save the world because, you know, we can feed everyone now. And it turns out, the famous saying, Charlton Heston runs out when he figures out what's happening. He's like, Soylent Green is people, right? You're feeding people back to the people. But, oh my gosh, in security, right, security is people. It's not the technology. So, you know, when I have conversations with our board or with our leadership team, I tell stories about humans. How, What's the human impact to, to our organization, right? When, when I started out doing this, I had a security, you know, monthly security report. It was all like metrics focused and, okay, we got to, you know, how many firewall, you know, uh, blocks have we, have we seen or whatever. It wasn't human, right? There, I, It's just numbers. It's huge numbers, but okay, cool. What does that mean? When you can tie it back to, okay, we had a person who was faced with identity theft. Here's the impact to them. And so I, I turned it into more article-driven, more story-driven things. And again, that, that changed the audience, right? From just being really concerned about, well, I don't want people to share the metrics. I, this is really just something for executives to, I'm gonna send this newsletter to everyone at the organization, including students. I'm gonna make it publicly accessible to, to the interwebs or share it on LinkedIn or whatever. And th that response, right, again, oh my gosh, that's very different than the traditional way of people do security, where it's a black box, right? I'm going to play my cards close to the vest. I'm not going to talk about things. And that's what I saw with in, in writing some of the books that I've written. When, when I talk to people, you know, people are, want to help. And then they're like, it has to be off the record because I can't tell these stories. Our, our peer department doesn't want me to, or I've got an NDA or whatever. And man, if we're not sharing our stories, then the next generation of security people are going to have to learn all of this over from scratch. And we can't do that. We have to stay ahead of the bad guys out there. And so again, you know, telling stories as an author, they always say, show, don't tell. And I think that there's a lot of telling when we give security advice instead of showing. That's the difference. Absolutely. And I think almost to apply that whole security through obscurity is no security at all, right? It's the same with stories. If you don't understand the issues that you're trying to combat, how can you possibly understand how you're, how you're going to secure them or the value of the security that is being built? So uh, kind of everyone here is here to sort of learn about zero trust and learn about zero trust from you, right? So let's start with, a, with an easy one. Give me your favorite zero trust analogy. Oh, man. Gosh, I think, well, I'll, I'll give you the worst analogy and then we'll go from there. Um, no, so, you know, what zero trust isn't, right? You know, I mean, obviously the two words imply like the X-Files, right? That, that's like the Fox Mulder, trust no one. And that's not what zero trust is. So zero trust, the analogy, don't use the analogy X-Files, right? You actually have to work with other human beings to make zero trust happen. So, you know, although zero trust implies don't trust, don't take the cynical approach of, okay, gosh, I can't trust anyone. You know, what we're doing there is we're substituting cynicism for good judgment, right? Zero trust takes analysis. It takes thoughtful 
exercise or the practice of security to help protect our communities. Gosh, the, my, probably my favorite analogy is just a jawbreaker, right? So instead of an M&M, right, with, which is the crunchy outside with the soft, chewy inside, jawbreaker is hard all the way through. So in terms of a candy, if you want, if you want to do zero trust, Make your organization a jawbreaker. And, and you know, hope, hopefully the bad guys will break their teeth on the jawbreaker when they try to, to, to bite into it. Takes you back to late days of primary school where you go into sort of these penny stores and fill up your sweet bag with, uh, with a bunch of jawbreakers and, and cola bottles, et cetera. Uh, and, then, and then wish that uh, you'd been careful with those jawbreakers as your teeth ache from chewing into them. Okay, so I absolutely love the way you described what zero trust is and more importantly, what it's not. And definitely the, the bit about zero trust doesn't mean no trust. And it's it's often something that, that kind of that we hear when sort of at conferences, et cetera, almost people saying that I don't want to hear about zero trust anymore, right? And I, I don't like the term. So what is a better way to express zero trust? So the way that I think about zero trust, there's a phenomenal book by Stephen Covey, who's actually the son of the Stephen Covey who wrote Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. His son, Stephen Covey, also wrote a book called Speed of Trust. And in his book, he argues that you have to have both trust and analysis at the same time to have good judgment, right? So think of a matrix, right? On the x-axis is trust. It's not a binary thing, I, I, you know, like a, like a spectrum, I either trust or don't. You actually have a y-axis, and the y-axis is analysis or skepticism or whatever, whatever you want to call it. But you have to have both at the same time, right? If you have low trust and low skepticism, that's kind of gullibility. If you have low trust and, and high skepticism, you're going to have indecision, right? You're not going to be able to get anything done. Covey talks about like a t- trust tax on an organization where if you don't trust trust any of the human beings around you, you're not going to get anything done or it's yeah, going to take absolutely. a really long time. Same thing with partners out, out in, in, in your different organizations or outside of your organization. So having both is really critical. And I think that, that understanding fundamentally of trust is something we don't necessarily talk about a lot in, in, in organizations. And, and frankly, when you get into zero trust, right, the real trick is how do I spot the trusts? Right. When I look at a computer, router, firewall, server config, what's the trust? How do I go through and get rid of them? That's what zero trust is about. It's not about not trusting people. It's about finding those trusts in our digital systems and, and getting rid of them. We've been doing this for years, right? Whether that's deprimerization, it's a tactic that falls under zero trust. Maybe server hardening, right? Just as simple as that, like removing all the bloatware that comes from who, whatever OS vendor you have. You only need that the things that you need to run. That's really what zero trust is all about. It's bringing all of those separate tactics, because that's what we were doing. We were implementing tactics all across the board to remove trust. Zero trust is the overarching strategy that helps bring us all onto the same page and gets us marching in the same direction. So without getting too philosophical, what is the meaning of trust in the context of cyber? You know, I, I, I think, yeah, what is a trust? There's a lot of different folks that talk about trust out there. And, you know, I, I think in terms of, of a digital system, it's about ease of connection, right? And that, that's why we put trusts in, right? I'm going to put in a firewall rule to allow me to talk to any server in my data center. Don't do this, by the way. This is bad advice. This is what we're not to do. But, right, that, that's, that's a trust. Okay, cool. 
now when my computer or my device gets compromised, that's what the bad guys exploit to go and have free reign in, into an, an organization. That's what a bad guys exploit in terms of multi-factor authentication. I trusted that device for however long you're allowed to set up a trust for. That's a challenge. And we've got to find the right balance. And I don't think there's a trade-off between usability and security. I think that's a myth. But that's the way that, that a lot of folks think about, well, you know, my, my end users, my clients are going to revolt if I don't. And actually, I think it, you touched on this in the beginning, right, when, you know, the highest ranking academic person at my university said, don't put a firewall between me and the internet. Okay, you know, what they were saying in, in the background was, I don't want to slow down my organization. I, I, I want to, you know, be able to perform my research without restriction, whatever my research is. And we need to enable that. And I think zero trust actually helps us Right. So, you know, at some point, our clients, our customers or at SMU, it's our students, they began starting to ask, well, why aren't you doing X? And I think, gosh, if you're signing up for a bank today and they don't set you up with multi-factor authentication, whoa, hang on now. I'm not going to do business with that bank. So at some point in, in, in our history, it, it became table stakes to have security. And I think for every industry, for every technology, that's the path, right? We're just figuring out how this stuff works. We're innovating and we, we didn't necessarily think about security. We're like, oh man, we're going to go out of business if we're not doing security. And I think the, the secret sauce of being a CISO today, moving that, that maturity model over to where you're building in security from, from you know day one. So you've talked about things like, and I think to quote you, it's like, you, you don't believe that usability, proactivity, and security are contradictory to each other, right? You very much believe that those go hand in hand. But, and then you also, and this is to quote something from your book, you said, the DevOps folks are all like Ricky Bobby, right? They just want to go fast, right? So as a CSO, how do you provide the security framework to allow the Ricky Bobbies to go fast, but do so safely? I think, again, it, it comes back to understanding humans, right? I mean, I, I love the joke of Ricky Bobby. I actually, I use that with permission from, from John Kindervog, who created Zero Trust. So thank you, John, for that. So when I, when I wrote the book, I, I, you know, I, I had the, the, the huge benefit of having John Kindervog riding shotgun, being able to bounce ideas off of. But I also went, I'm not an expert in every domain of security, right? So I'm not an identity expert necessarily. I'm not a cloud or DevOps. Expert. So I tried to find as many experts as I could. And when I sat down with some of the folks who, are really great at DevOps, you know, the, the, the developers, it's not that they don't want to do security. It's that they're incentivized to, you know, all, all, all of their bosses need to get code out the door. Again, that, that's great. It's really needed for lots of organizations. And actually, that's a benefit, right? So uh, Zoom is a great example. Zoom is a DevOps company. So, you know, when, well, I'm not going to call them a cyber criminal, a hacker, former NSA person disclosed to Zero Days, right? What did they do? They're like, cool, I'm stopping everything else. And we're going to dedicate all of our DevOps cycles to fixing this. That's incredible, right? That, that That's one story of how DevOps enables security. And again, we in the security community have some norms. And, you know, that, that you know, I, I think we like to, you know, disclose to a company first and give them some time. I, I don't think that process was followed in that case. So really, it's hugely unprecedented for an organization to be able to turn around a fix in 24 hours with no prior notice, right? It's an incredible story, but it just shows you 
how how much uh, you know security and DevOps right can be aligned. Um, and I think we have to be able to come to our partners and work with them where and meet them where they are. Right, a lot of what we can do with zero trust in the DevOps world, but in particular, is to, to just be a part of their pipeline. Right, they're already doing testing as a part of the pipeline. So let's let's just add a few tests. Can we check for secrets before the code gets pushed? Uh, right. So so thinking about it instead of trying to secure the code at the end of the pipeline, you know, zero trust is really about problem management. Let's eliminate whole categories of issues before they, they they become a problem. Let's think about prevention. Let's get everybody on the same page. And actually, that that enables CTOs and DevOps folks to to not have to go and do those fixes at the end of the cycle, right? It's just built into the process. So I'm going to quote your book again, right? I think kind of at the start of the introduction chapter, you say, the most effective means we have available to protect ourselves in cybersecurity is prevention. And the most effective strategy for prevention is zero trust, right? And I'm going to challenge you slightly, so bear with me, is that if we think about the whole, the era of perimeter security, so think of, let's say, 90s, 2000s, was very much sort of the era of prevention, right? The bad actors are on the outside, everyone on the inside is trusted, right? So as long as we shut the front door or we keep that tightly locked, we're all good, right? And then we have the sort of, then we realize that actually that was failing, right? They were still getting in and... Then it was a focus around sort of detection and response, right? Okay, let's put all our effort or majority of our effort in being able to detect, being able to respond, being able to recover, right? And that kind of became the the driving, I would say, 2010s, right? And I'm going to say to you that the current era is around containment, right? Assuming that the bad actor is going to get in we may not be able to detect them. So the focus is around minimizing the impact of that. What are your thoughts on that? Say it's not um, like zero trust is really about containment more than prevention. What are your thoughts? Technically, the definition we use for zero trust is John Kinderbog's definition, and we go with that in the book. But the definition is zero trust is about as a strategy for preventing or containing breaches. We want to remove the trust in digital systems and, you know, ideally we'll we'll prevent them. And prevention is possible. Right. So and I I think a lot of folks have maybe given up on that. uh, Right. And one of the one of the tenets of zero trust is to assume breach. We also will attempt containment. So I think it's about both. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure is really true in security, right? They've done studies about this, um, you know, to show, you know, again, getting at the beginning of your code pipeline, much less expensive than having to fix things after the fact, right? so, So... you know, I argue uh, that zero trust is actually the only thing in security today that actually meets the definition of a strategy, right? So I had an argument with another CISO about whether uh, defense in depth meets the definition of a strategy. I argue that it does not. But when you think about it, right, uh, a, a strategy has to have two things, right? You have to have a goal that you're trying to reach, and you have to have a plan for how to get there. And ideally, with a good strategy, you can measure how far along you are towards achieving that. So when you think about Something, again, I think of defense in depth as a tactic, but when you think about defense in depth, okay, cool, what's the goal? I I think if you look at the technical definition of defense in depth, it's actually, you know, the goal is to to have multiple layers in order to prevent a failure of one of the layers. So ultimately, if there's a goal for defense in depth, it's about dealing with failure, not 
preventing or containing breaches. With defense in depth, you're not actually addressing why a particular layer failed. And you know, a lot of folks will call defense in depth expense in depth because what do we do? We just add more layers. That, that's great, not efficient, right? And so when you're pitching your board on something that sounds like we're just going to add a bunch of layers, what? how do you know when you're done, George? How much money do you need? Honestly, if JP Morgan can spend a billion dollars a year and get breached, if my university pursued that same approach, how do we know it's going to be effective? Ah, it's not an effective strategy. I think it's more like a tactic. Zero trust is that strategy to help get all of the all of the teams engaged in the right ways. We can leverage the right tactics and the, at the right time so that there, we're not having you know tool bloat that we don't need fifty or hundred tools to accomplish what we can do with three or four. I mean, of course, I agree with that. <laughs> but the, there was a few really interesting things that you said. You we you spoke about the cost associated with when you're just pursuing a defense in depth approach without really having a strategy around it, right? Today, particularly with the macro conditions, right, there is this whole sort of if ever there was a real pointed focus on ROI, we have that at the moment, right? So how does following a zero trust strategy really deliver not just security benefits, but ROI, cost, operational efficiencies, simplicity in architectures. How does a zero trust strategy deliver these things? Yeah, so in the book, we used John Kinderweg's design methodology for mm. zero trust. Yep. So there's a five-step process. Yep. And really the foundation of that five-step process is this concept of a protect surface. Uh, so uh, yeah, a protect surface is like the opposite of an attack surface. And I understand that Gartner has a whole buzzword like attack surface management or, you know, a hype cycle or magic quadrant. Attack surface management is a lie. You know, it's a marketing term that gives you the idea that if you only you could shrink your attack surface, then you'll be more secure. You can't shrink your attack surface. Your attack surface is any device in the world. So when you look at the Peloton or Parlay breaches, right, what do they do? Both organizations had an API, you know, one to go to mobile phones, one to go to treadmills or, or, or you know, exercise bikes or whatever. Well, guess what? The bad guys just reverse engineered that API. There was a blind spot to those organizations. They didn't see or have controls around it to be able to detect anything through the API. And the bad guys uh, exfiltrated all the data through, helpfully through the API that the company provided. That's a attack surface management. If you've got a mobile app, any mobile phone in the world is your attack surface. So in Instead, contrast, um, Zero Trust uses this concept of a protect surface, right? What am I trying to protect, right? That requires that I have to understand how the business works, that I have to have an inventory, right? I have to know what my top apps are, where my critical data is. So I'm going to get my arms around that which I'm trying to protect inside a protect surface, and I'm going to have a repeatable process that I follow to protect that, right? So when I think about deploying tools as a CISO, right, in the olden times, I'd think, okay, i got to deploy firewalls everywhere. I've got to deploy EDR everywhere. Actually, when I think about just a protect surface, I'm going to provide bespoke controls to just that protect surface. So instead of licensing for my whole organization all of these different tools, I'm going to only use the ones that are needed inside that given protect surface, right? So if I have a protect surface that has an API, for example, I'm going to go to one of those awesome companies that have API security baked in. I'm going to put that in there. If it's web-facing, I'm going to have a web application firewall. If it's a device, obviously I need endpoint EDR. I'm going to have a firewall, but I'm going to bake that and have a 
custom tailored, if you will, to protect that individual protect surface the way that it needs to. And okay, if that gets, you know, again, I've got multiple protect surface. This is the concept of micro segmentation another tactic that falls under zero trust. I'm gonna put like assets together, and so I'm gonna contain that incident to just that one protect surface, right? And understand how those other protect surfaces interact, and hopefully I've contained that to, to a single protect surface. That's really the power of this zero trust design methodology is really having bespoke controls and then again, iterating, monitoring, logging everything. Again, another one of the tenets of the design methodology, but having that feedback loop. Again, it's about, okay, now that I've got my protect surface, how do I spot the trusts? How do I remove them? Sometimes that's through proactive architecture I can think ahead. Sometimes that's through pen tests or tabletop exercises or other things that help me find my own blind spots. And hopefully I'm being proactive and doing that before the bad guys find them for me. I had the pleasure of sort of having a few conversations with, with John and that sort of the concept of the protect surface, like obviously that's he constantly sort of stresses that again and then again. And it absolutely makes sense because I think some of the challenges with zero trust adoption when organizations say that, all right, it's really difficult for us to follow a zero trust strategy because how am I going to apply it to absolutely everything, right? And you say, actually, no, you've almost got to flip it on its head and say, what do I most need to protect and focus on that? Why, why are we still having this challenge? Because again, to me, it comes as a zero trust strategy. That to me is common sense, right? Thinking about the protect surface that is common sense, right, as to where to start. And then as you iterate, you constantly look at that, what is the next thing you move to, right? But why why still the barrier to adoption? Yeah, it's fascinating. I've talked to a lot of CISOs both before and after the book came out. And honestly, the common denominator of folks who have launched their zero trust initiatives and failed is because people, right? Uh, it's not the, the technology. It's not that they didn't have all, all the tools they needed or whatever. It was about politics. It was about, you know, people didn't know what, you know, what to do. They didn't know where to start. And again, I'm harping on people here. But oh my gosh, if security, if zero trust is just for us security nerds, right, we're going to fail. Because it's not the security nerds that are having to go out and do all of the things. You've got infrastructure teams, you've got DevOps teams, you've got help desk or desktop support folks. So everyone in IT needs to be able to understand zero trust. And if I as a CISO can't understand zero trust because all of the marketing hype or whatever out there and there's so many competing like things, if I can't understand it, how do I expect a new network engineer to my organization to be able to go and deliver on zero trust, right? Oh my gosh, obviously the, the right answer here is now go buy George's book, Project Zero Trust, available on Amazon and Audible and have them, <laughs> right, to break down the barriers or we can just make it really simple. But again, everybody has to understand zero trust in order for our projects around zero trust to be successful, right? Yeah, I agree. And I, I think what I love about the book, and there's, there's lots to love in it, but what I liked is that sort of the validation of the progress, the tabletop exercise, right, that they run. And those of you who haven't read the book yet or listened to it, you'll get the reference when you do. Sort of how does that, like, because validation is so important, right? I, th I think that as security practitioners, we don't do enough real validation. So why is this particularly important to show sort of ROI, in your sort of zero cross program, but also in short, like get validation that you're making progress. Yeah. And again, this is another one of the reasons why zero trust projects fail. When I've talked to other CISOs, the average time it takes for a zero trust transformation is like three to five years. 
depending on where you're starting from, right, it can vary by a couple of years. But oh, oh my gosh, think about executive turnover. Think about CISO turnover. And think about the budget cycle. So if you're not showing progress from year to year, um, well, you know, how, how do you keep justifying that? How do you you know, continue to get support. And as a CISO, you ought to be out there developing relationships, building trust. But part of that is breaking Project Zero Trust down into bite-sized chunks. And so in the book, we suggested that their journey lasts six months. And that was driven by like a new product project release. And so they had to get it done by a certain date. I think that really aligned well with the business, right? All the business leaders realized yeah, we got this new project or product coming out. We had some security incidents. We want people to be a part and feel comfortable that we're going to deliver good security, good products. If we don't, we think the new product isn't going to uh, compete in the market. And again, that's aligning with the business. That's connecting the dots. That's not saying, ah, oh, we, we know we have this new project per product coming out in, in, in six months. We'll be done with zero trust in five years. No, that's that, you know, again, there is a zero trust maturity model out there, folks. There's one in the book that, that is blessed by Dervag himself. There's also one now from CISA. And so I'm a part of the, the Cloud Security Alliance Working Group on Zero Trust. And Kindervag and Chase Cunningham and others are collaborating with CISA to, to get that document right. But wow, I, I think collective, we're working together, right? Oh my gosh, the security community is working together to have one consistent definition of zero trust. Something to start with instead of, I got to go go look at Forrester and Gartner and get behind the paywall. And I hear all these startups like th throwing zero trust products at me. Oh, okay, let's go to a consistent definition that we can all get behind, right? And talk about, okay, I have a tool that can help you in your zero trust journey. Not, I have the tool that is all of your zero trust needs all in one. That's what we're really about. And again, we've got to make it simple and bring everybody to the table. Yeah, I think I, I absolutely like the whole sort of thing about being able to almost look at it in sort of six months blocks at a time, right? And align to a maturity model and being able to say that in six months, we want to be here. In 12 months, we want to be here is just such a more digestible way of being able to adopt and also course correct because otherwise it's kind of fund this five-year program but don't come and ask us anywhere between now and five years time what we've been up to again in two years the company might be using entirely different technology yeah. how do you keep up with that in terms of your zero trust gosh yeah you've got to make it a step-by-step -step approach right so the motto for the fictional company in the book so the company name is march fit and their company motto is every step matters and every step matters because you have to take one step to enable the the step after that they don't have to be big steps right you don't have to be you don't have to be running you can walk baby steps count and yeah i think that approach to zero trust right we're always improving step by step. Everybody can come walk with us and make it inclusive. That's what we're, that, that's really what's going to move. Yeah, 100%. So just kind of looking forward, right? Let's looking into 2023. As a CSO, what are you most worried about? Gosh, people. I think honestly, there's a lot of burnout that's happened with the pandemic. I think recruiting obviously is the big challenge. I think the great resignation is a huge concern. That battle is being waged in our leadership teams across different organizations, right? How do we continue to enable security? How do we continue to lift up the organizations in our each of our own unique digital transformations? I think we've got to keep investing in people to keep making progress. And if we stop doing that, again, security is always at the bleeding edge. So if we're not dedicated to continuous learning, to lifelong learning, we're eventually going to start to fall behind. And I think when you're overloaded and you're getting burnt out, that's 
the first thing to go is I'm going to, I'm going to stop reading. I'm going to stop listening to books on tape or whatever, however it is you get your, your education, man, that, that is going to set us back years. I mean, we've, we've got to be welcoming new people to security. I keep hearing people are turned off by security because it's the, it's the spooky Fox Mulder types. And like, I, you know, I, I want to do something that helps people and security does help people. But, you know, if we're turning people away from security because we're, again, we're not investing in folks, we're, we're putting out job descriptions that are supposed to be entry level, but they're requiring 20 years of experience yeah. and zero trust. <laughs> and admittedly, like, yeah, I mean, th- think, think about like some of the job descriptions that say 20 years experience with zero trust. Guess what? Kindervog invented zero trust 12 years ago. Yeah. Excellent. Exactly. Anyway, I'll, I'll get down from my soapbox a little bit. You're, you're preaching to the converted here. So <laughs> I completely agree. I think I, I almost feel that it's that it's not far off us seeing sort of academic institutions offering undergraduate degrees in, in zero trust, right? <laughs> so George, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you today. I just really enjoyed the conversation and could have gone on forever. Please, everyone, do go and check out George's latest book, Project Zero Trust, a story about a strategy for aligning security in the business on Amazon or like me. If you prefer it through your ears rather than through your eyes, go and check it out on Audible. George will be very pleased to know that I'm fairly sure that I hold the world record for how quickly that book is finished. So yeah, I sort of found the time between yesterday and today to just whiz through it. Didn't miss a word except for the appendix. I have to admit, I didn't listen to the appendix. It's fantastic. I feel that today in our conversation, I have been the Dylan or the Luke Skywalker from the story, and you have very much been the Obi-Wan. So I appreciate the time, George. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of The Segment. For even more information and Zero Trust resources, check out our website at alumio.com. You can also connect with us on LinkedIn and Twitter at Illumio. And if you like today's conversation, you can find our other episodes wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Raghunanda Kumara, and we'll be back soon.